Welcome to Move Forward Radio, a show featuring interviews with physical therapists and other healthcare experts. This program is brought to you by MoveForwardPT.com, the official consumer information website of the American Physical Therapy Association. Learn how physical therapists can help people of all ages and abilities reduce pain and improve and restore motion to achieve long-term quality of life at MoveForwardPT.com. Welcome to Move Forward Radio. I'm Jason Bellamy. If you're one of the millions of Americans who contributes to the multi-billion dollar industry that is fantasy sports, you're probably familiar with today's guest, Stefania Bell. A physical therapist who is a board-certified specialist in orthopedics, Bell is best known for her work with ESPN, where she analyzes injury reports about elite athletes, helping fantasy sports players and average sports fans alike know when injured players might return to the field of play and what kind of performance to expect when they do. One of the injuries Bell often analyzes is the ACL tear, which in recent years has been suffered by baseball's Mariano Rivera, football's Robert Griffin III, and skiing's Lindsey Vaughn, to name just a few. In this episode, Bell describes the impact of ACL tears on both elite athletes and amateur weekend warriors, and she helps explain why the injury might be more debilitating for one group than the other. She also takes us through her unique career as the most recognized injury expert for fantasy sports. A reminder, as always, the input from our guest is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. With that, here's our interview with Stefania Bell. Stefania, we're going to talk about ACL injuries today, but before we get into that, I want to talk to you about what's a pretty unique career. A lot of people are going to recognize you as the ESPN expert who helps them manage their fantasy sports teams. Fantasy sports at this point is played by 35 million Americans and Canadians. That number grows by about 2 million people each year. It's a thriving industry. How did you get involved and become, in so many ways, the face of injuries related to fantasy sports? It's funny. I never knew fantasy sports was going to pay off this way. I developed an interest in fantasy football in the late 90s. Some physical therapy colleagues actually got me into a league, and I started playing in a very competitive co-ed league. And what I found out was that people were really interested in asking me questions about injured players because they knew I worked in a sports medicine environment and the injury reports were pretty slim in terms of the information they revealed. So they'd ask me, how long does it really take a guy to come back from this type of injury? And I realized fairly quickly that that information could be valuable. So I thought, how can I parlay this into something where I can actually use my physical therapy skills and, you know, market it to fantasy sports players, knowing that this number was growing constantly. And the other thing that happened at the same time, I was, I've always been a big sports fan, and when I would watch sports, I would see commentators struggling sometimes with basic pronunciation of injuries and struggling to describe what they were and a lot of speculating about how an injury might impact an athlete. And I thought, you know, there are legal analysts who go on TV and talk about pieces they're not directly involved in but have the perspective of being an attorney practicing law that they can provide insight from a distance. I thought maybe we should have something like that in medicine. I'd seen some of the physicians who did the morning television talk shows, for example, and I thought maybe in sports we should have somebody who's talking about injuries and breaking them down. So I really got the idea of combining those two things, and I just started going to fantasy sport trade association meetings because I had a friend who was also getting into the fantasy sports business and talking to people and finding out how much they would value having more detailed injury information. And the reception I got was pretty encouraging. People wanted the information, but what I also heard was, 
this information is valuable. People are going to love to have it, but nobody's going to pay you for it. And I thought, if it's valuable enough and you're telling me people want it, somebody will pay me for it. So I found someone who gave me a little bit of a blog space to write a couple commentaries on injuries in one football season. That grew to working for a larger outfit, Rotowire, who actually hired me to do their season preview for fantasy football in a magazine. And then I stayed with them for baseball, and we started doing XM radio. And the more visibility I got from there, I happened to connect with the folks at ESPN who were trying to build their fantasy department at that time. And they were essentially creating a larger staff of fantasy sports experts. And I had a unique skill set because I talked about injuries. And I was one of the few women who was a voice of fantasy sports at that time. And so I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to come audition at ESPN. And one thing led to another, and that's how I ended up here. That it was initially thought that you couldn't ever make a living doing this, that you could pay for it, really shows how much fantasy sports has grown just even in the last 10 years. That said, you've been at ESPN since 2007. Did this feel like something that just happened yesterday and it's sort of been this overnight thing? Did it feel like a long journey to get to where you are? Well, there were a few years when I was testing the waters of fantasy sports, and I was working still my clinic practice full-time. I was also teaching in a physical therapy professional program and a manual therapy fellowship, and I was doing the fantasy sports on a lark. I mean, I was doing this for fun, so I would be writing one column a week, essentially pulling an all-nighter. It felt like college to get this column done, but I really thought there was something to it, and after a year and a half or so of that, I thought, I don't know how much longer I can keep up this pace. You know, it's either got to make a leap soon, or I may have to just consider this a hobby. But I was pretty persistent in terms of trying to market it around. And when ESPN expressed interest, then everything accelerated from there, because obviously with that brand, there was such a big market, and I got a lot more exposure by joining the company. And since I've been here, since that 2007 time, then it starts to feel like just yesterday because everything really took off from there. It's funny, you know, you talk about those early trade shows you went to, and for whatever reason, I'm just sort of picturing a couple guys with card tables and like, the lights <laughs> flickering. And You're you know, exactly these, right, by the way. Yeah, these, these early images of what these things might have been, and now we're to this sort of slicked, polished age, and so many people are plugged into it. Was there a turning point year or moment or time where all of a sudden you realized, man, this is becoming something big? I think my first big moment was when I started to work for Rotowire and I wrote a magazine article and I walked into Barnes and Noble and saw the magazine and saw my name on the cover as an author and I thought, wow, this is pretty big. I can actually buy a magazine where I've written an article on injuries and that article is one of the few that's advertised on the cover of the magazine. So this must be a target for the fantasy sports audience. And then doing the XM radio spots and realizing that this was big enough to create a radio show entirely around fantasy sports. And I think when I got to ESPN, the fantasy sports department was tiny. It was just starting out, and we created a podcast the first year I was there. You know, Matthew Berry was really responsible for growing that fantasy sports department. We created a podcast. We launched our Fantasy Football Now show, which at that time was entirely online. So that show would air on Sunday. We produced it in a studio. It was a studio TV show, but it aired online only. And we actually got an Emmy for that show at the end of the year. And that told me that anything could happen. Yeah, I imagine Emmy wasn't in your mind when you were no. looking for somebody to give you 25 cents or something to just be making a profit for your work. 
But it also proves two things. One is I'm always up for a challenge when people tell me something can't be done. And if I think it's a reasonable idea, I'm usually out to try and prove that wrong. And, you know, really the sky's the limit in terms of where you want to take your career. I don't think most people entering into the physical therapy profession would have thought that you would end up commenting on TV or radio about injuries. But doors always open in the most unexpected places. So how far out are you extended now? ESPN's well-known for taking their personalities and integrating them into a number of media opportunities. So what what are you doing? What's the gamut? Well, I'm definitely what you call multi-platform. We have, as you mentioned, a number of different outlets. We have the digital space on ESPN.com. We do radio and podcasting, television, and I'm involved in all of those. So I have a blog uh, that I write, and it runs pretty much year-round, but definitely heavy during the football season and then heavy again during baseball season. And so that's always on ESPN.com. We have a podcast called The Fantasy Focus, which I'm a regular part of in football season a couple of days a week and then once a week during baseball season. And then our television show, Fantasy Football Now, which airs every Sunday, uh, that's very consistent. My other television appearances are really uh, injury dependent. So if something happens and there's breaking news and there's an injury that's of interest and they'd like to have somebody provide analysis on it, then I will get called in to do that. So the crazy thing about that aspect of the job is that you can get called at any hour of the day. I've been on the air at midnight before. I've been on the air at 7 in the morning. So uh, just sort of all over the place. But those are really the different areas where it can appear. And then I guest on a lot of different shows. I'm very fortunate to say I've been on almost every show we have on ESPN because every single sport has injuries. You know, you're a physical therapist, you're on the radio, you're on TV, you're writing things, you're in the fantasy sports area, but you're also getting information that might just benefit somebody who just wants to know if the star quarterback is going to be back next year. So you wear all those hats in a sense. Then on the other hand, to get this information, you have NFL teams that are required to do injury reports, although famously some teams are more forthright with those injury reports than others. You have players who are trying to be maybe more optimistic than they should be or playing coy. How much do you feel like you're doing detective work, trying to find out any little bit of information you can on a specific player's injury? How much are you feeling like a medical analyst? How much do you feel like a straight reporter? And how much do you feel like this sort of, you know, and I use this term with affection, this fantasy geek who is really (laughs) trying to help somebody build their team? What's the identity that you feel or does it vary depending on what you're called in to do? Well, I think it's a little bit of everything all the time, all those things that you mentioned. You do have to dig a little deeper with with some teams to try and get at the information because they're interested in concealing as much as possible, whereas other teams are more forthright. I basically operate on the information that's been made public. So we are trusting to some degree that they are providing accurate information. The information may be limited in scope, but generally they're not falsifying the information. So you take the basics of what they give. I read into the nuances, and that's really the benefit of having been in clinical practice for so long. Sometimes players give quotes or people with the team will say certain things that provide a hint for someone who's been in the medical arena in terms of how a player's actually doing. And I find when I talk to the players themselves, I get great information. I travel during spring training uh, in advance of the baseball season. I travel to NFL training camps before the start of the season. And I'm often chatting with players who are coming back from injury. And when they know they're talking to a physical therapist, I think they feel like I understand what they've been through. So they'll go into a much more detail about their recovery and about what they've been doing through rehab because they know 
I understand it. And that's actually been really helpful in terms of projecting how a player looks coming into the season. Obviously, there's a reporting element involved where you're trying to gather information, just like any other reporter would. But there are HIPAA lines. Medical staff are not going to breach patient confidentiality, and I respect that, having a foot in the medical profession, so to speak. So, again, I really focus on the information that's been made public, but I would say that I have an advantage in the interpretation of that information based on my experience. And as far as fantasy geek, I play the games. I, I love telling people this is part of my job is that I play fantasy football and I play fantasy baseball. So I understand what that audience is looking for in terms of information, and it helps me do my job. When you're breaking down some of those injuries, you know, again, we're going to talk about ACL injuries later, how much are you grading on a curve? So, for example, if the guy who works down the street who plays basketball on the weekend and is 40 years old, he blows out his ACL, he's got a certain recovery pattern. And if Adrian Peterson does it, he's got a different recovery pattern. Not only is he an elite athlete, but he's got the best training staff that's going to be really proactive and, and try and get him back. What is the difference, in essence, in a recovery for some of the injuries for a quote-unquote normal person versus these elite athletes? I think you're bringing up a great point because the general public often wants to know why they can't get back to doing things. Why can't I recover from my ACL reconstruction in six and a half or seven months like Adrian Peterson? And it's important for people to recognize that these athletes, this is their job. All they're doing when they're rehabbing is rehab. Most people who aren't professional athletes for a living have other jobs and other lives, and they have to go about that business and incorporate rehab into the mix. So they don't have the advantage of working around the clock. I mean, tissue healing is still tissue healing, but certainly these athletes are in incredible physical shape to begin with. They're working at an accelerated pace. They have all the advantages of being in their facilities and getting that treatment basically 24-7. So it's not really fair to compare timelines, and I tell people that. On the flip side, because I am reporting on athletes, it's important to understand that the sports medicine timetables are different. So you have to appreciate how medicine is done in the sports medicine environment in order to be able to translate that to the audience. It is a different practice when you're talking about professional athletes or even some of the elite uh, Division I college programs. Those athletes are on a different pace than the normal public. To some degree, you must feel like you're reporting the weather. I mean, you know the trends, you can sort of make predictions, but the human body is the human body, and some people are going to have good luck and some people bad luck. On average, how often are you surprised by what ends up being the recovery for an athlete? Either positively, man, somebody just got back much faster than you could have ever expected, or on the negative, somebody takes a lot longer. I don't know that I'm hugely surprised that often because I do appreciate that there's variability. In fact, I'm often pressed by my coworkers. They like to mock me in the podcast where they'll ask me to rate the chances of a player staying healthy all season. And I laugh because it, regardless of the injury they're recovering from, if that's the case, who am I to predict what's going to happen in any series of events as the season goes along? And maybe completely separate from the injury they're dealing with currently. And as we know, the random occurrences all the time time in sports. These guys can get injured for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with their prior history. So we try and project on a scale based on if a guy has an extensive, complicated health history, his chances of being healthy and staying healthy are obviously less than if he was somebody who had a remarkable durability history and hadn't been injured much in his career. But as far as specifics, I really stay away from that because I tell people if I knew what the outcome was going to be, I'd be in Vegas, not Bristol. 
in the years that you've done this and you've reported this, is rehabilitation getting better in general? I mean, are athletes recovering faster from injuries than they used to, say, when you start with ESPN in 2007 or even before that? I think we're seeing some outliers who then set the bar very high. You're Adrian Peterson's, for example. And what's interesting about Adrian Peterson is it's not so much the timetable he came back in, although people think it's quite fast. If you look at many college players, they're on a similar time schedule. It's the level at which he returned and the fact that he had no bumps in the road along the way after he came back to play. We often see after a major injury, guys will do well, then they might have a little bit of a setback, they develop some soreness, some swelling. He came back at a high level and stayed at a high level. So things like that, they're a bit of the outlier. Overall, I think the rehab schedule has been moved up a bit. We've seen it following Tommy John surgeries, for example, where the window really used to be 12 to 16 months for a pitcher to return, and now we're seeing it's more like 9 to 12. And That comes as a result of comfort. Enough patients are seen in the rehab facility. There's an appreciation that we can push them a little bit harder. And as that happens over time and there aren't any negative consequences, then we know that the rehab timetable can be accelerated. So, yes, I think we're seeing that there's a little bit of an increase in terms of the rate at which we're bringing some of these athletes back. But it's also important to stress that everybody's unique. Uh, Some people aren't meant to go as fast as others and that even if the generality is it looks like people are coming back faster, everybody is being evaluated individually by the person who's overseeing their rehab and adjustments will be made if they're needed. Uh, They're not going to push a guy back too quickly because the stakes are too high. And I think that's very important for everyone on down through the general public, especially to the youth athletes who often look to the pros as the example and may wonder why they're not coming back as quickly. The Adrian Peterson story is a remarkable success story. There's Robert Griffin III is recovering from an ACL injury. Lindsey Vaughn, the downhill skier. There are obviously numerous ACL injuries that happen. That's become a rather common term. People think they understand what an ACL injury is and what that means to a player. Can you describe the importance of the ACL in the knee and how it relates to some other common knee injuries that we hear about? It's funny. You're right. People say ACL, and I think we used to explain it stands for anterior cruciate ligament, and it's so much a part of the vernacular now, you don't even have to explain it. People know what it is. But as a basic review, there are four primary stabilizing ligaments of your knee, the ACL, which is deep inside the center of the joint, and it's called the cruciate ligament because it forms a cross with the other cruciate ligament, the posterior cruciate ligament, or PCL. And then you have two major ligaments on the side, the MCL, medial collateral on the inner side of the knee, and the LCL, or the lateral collateral on the outer side of the knee. And there are numerous other ligamentous structures there, but these four primary stabilizers help really keep the knee intact. And of course, you have the menisci in there, which are the cushions, essentially to help provide some cushion and mobility with the joint. And then the cartilage surface, which we always hear about the risk of cartilage damage in the knee from wear and tear. All these things together are very important for the health and the integrity of the knee. And any of the ligaments can be damaged, but the ACL is such a devastating injury because when you have a complete tear of the ACL, the surgical reconstruction and the rehab from that takes up the better part of a year. And it's far more common to tear the ACL than the PCL. So this is the one that we hear about 
all the time. And it's particularly vulnerable in deceleration and rotation. So we see it a lot with these plant and cut in football. You see guys stop on a dime and cut to the inside, and it's often right when they do that plant and cut that they will crumble to a heap. And people seem to be amazed. Nobody touched them. But by and large, these are non-contact injuries. They don't require a hit. It's just that force that's happening inside the knee, which damages the ligament. They can also be injured from an awkward landing from a vertical jump. We see that in basketball players sometimes, a hyperextension injury like Rajon Rondo of the Celtics this year ended up tearing his ACL that way. And we sometimes see the contact ACL injuries. Adrian Peterson took a hit to the knee. That's part of the reason that he had such significant damage to his MCL as well. But the most common mechanism is a non-contact injury, and there are numerous forces that are going through the knee when you have to stop on a dime. I've spoken to uh, Dr. Robert Anderson, who's Carolina Panthers team doctor and a foot and ankle specialist, and he's on the NFL safety committee looking at the role of footwear and field surfaces and how that might be contributing to some of the increased ACL injuries and ankle injuries that they're seeing in the NFL. So people are always looking for ways to improve whatever we can to decrease the number of these injuries, but we're certainly seeing a lot of them. And I don't know if it's more recognized uh, than it used to be, but I also think the numbers have gone up. It's just as athletes have gotten quicker and stronger and faster. When you're talking about somebody like RG3, who he has a combined knee injury, so he had ACL and LCL, and I'm sure he had other smaller tears. Lindsey Vaughn broke a bone and also had ACL and MCL, I believe. So are those combined injuries any harder to recover from than just a standard ACL injury? Essentially, if I've torn my ACL, does it probably mean I've torn something else? We often see meniscal injuries in conjunction with ACL. We're hearing more commonly of the ACL and the MCL together. That often happens where you have the ACL, MCL, and the medial meniscus. Or even bone bruising, cartilage damage in conjunction with the ACL. Rarely is it truly what we call a clean ACL, where it's just the ACL and nothing else being touched. It depends on the extent of the peripheral damage, if you will in terms of the recovery. Because if you have a multi-ligament injury, for example, there may be some staging involved. There may be a time where you're not allowed to move the knee as aggressively because you're allowing one element to heal and therefore the motion has to be slowed down. Or if there's a meniscus repair, for example, that's done first. Sometimes there's a non-weight-bearing period for up to six weeks before they'll even go back and then reconstruct the ACL. So it really depends on what the total damage is within the knee in terms of the timetable, but there often is an extension of the time frame if there's significant damage beyond the ACL itself. Whether we're talking about somebody like RG3 or Vaughn, again, you're not their physical therapist, you don't have the latest update on their status, but in general, when an elite-level athlete is recovering from an ACL injury like that, what does their recovery typically consist of? What's that plan usually look like? It's interesting for all the regular population out there, the rehab essentially looks very much the same, especially at the beginning. The early goals are to decrease swelling, you know, pain control, get the motion back, particularly if you're focusing on just the ACL. Early motion is critical. You don't want to get stiffness in the knee. So that's the focus out of the gate. And then getting that quad muscle on the front of the thigh, getting the ability for that muscle to contract back so that they can walk normally. And you can walk without a limb. And then over the next few months, it's really a matter of progressive strengthening, uh, enhanced cardiovascular conditioning, incorporating 
proprioceptive activities, which really are describe activities that train your limb about where it is in space. So balance and coordination. And then as they get stronger, you start working into higher level activities. At the very highest level, you get back to sports-specific drills where you're actually training the body for a preparation, if you will, of returning to sport. So breaking the sport down into little drills or tests. And then the last hurdle is clearing for return to play. And in the contact sport, you might start by introducing one-on-one contact, for instance, and then exposing them to team contact. I think that one of the things that's forgotten or overlooked by a number of people is that the mental hurdles in returning from this kind of injury may be some of the biggest challenges that an athlete faces. They're very good at tolerating the physical discomfort. The first couple weeks, they will always say are hard because they're shocked at how their leg looks. They're shocked by the swelling. They're shocked by the disappearance of their quad muscle when they're used to being in such great shape. But after they get through those first few weeks, they're they're usually doing pretty well. And one of the challenges is slowing them down so they don't get ahead of the game. Now, you're trying to control their activity. You want them rehabbing at a high level, but you don't want them pushing the new graft beyond what it can handle. But when they get close to returning to sport, they are often apprehensive. They remember what it felt like when their knee gave out and they fell to the ground. And especially since most of these injuries are non-contact, they're not sure they can really trust their knee. What happens when I go out and I make that move again? Is my knee really going to hold up? And so there's a lot that goes into getting them confident enough to get back on the field and pushing them through that so that they can see that, yes, it's going to hold up, and they start thinking about the sport and not thinking about their knee any longer. We talk about how common the ACL injury is becoming, not only in terms of its frequency, but just the comfort that the public has talking about it and acting as if we're experts on the subject, as if it's a broken finger and we can just understand intuitively what that is. Before, you mentioned Tommy John surgery. There's an injury that in the past was considered extremely career-threatening and now has also become kind of run-of-the-mill and not as devastating as it once thought of. Is the ACL injury for the elite athlete now, is that a career-threatening injury at this point? On a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of how devastating an injury that is, what is that? You know, I'd have to rate it pretty low. I mean, I'd rate it around a 3. And that's, of course, we're generalizing here because it all is relative to where you are in your career and how much trauma perhaps the knee's been through in the past and do you really want to undergo the rehab. But you look in baseball at Mariano Rivera, who's coming back this year at age 43, after having ACL surgery. So he tears his ACL at 42 years old, shagging balls in the outfield. And many people immediately thought, well, that must be it for him. Why would he come back? And if you look at his level of fitness, what the demands of his job were, and just the type of person he is that probably wanted to go out of baseball in different terms, it wasn't a surprise at all to me that he rehabbed it and chose to come back and looking quite solid this spring. So age is not necessarily a determining factor. The sport, not necessarily. Because I've seen ACL injuries in NASCAR drivers, not because they were injured driving their car. They were injured doing something else. But Denny Hamlin came back and raced in a race nine days after undergoing ACL reconstruction. And so we see it in every sport. And I don't think... At this stage, people expect an ACL to be a career-ending injury. I think they appreciate that it's a long haul, that you can't take anything for granted, that you're going to have to work very hard to return to the elite level of performance you had before, but that it's certainly doable, and many athletes have shown that over and over. 
So if I'm a Redskins fan and I want to see RG3 back, if I'm a Celtics fan and I want to see Rajon Rondo back, if I'm a downhill skiing fan and I want to see Lindsey Vaughn back, how optimistic should I be about their recoveries? And in general, should I be optimistic? Oh, in general, I'd be very optimistic. I expect all three of those athletes you mentioned to be back. Now, they are all different. One of the things with RG3 is we know is he had an LCL injury as well. A little less common had to do with the way that, that he was injured initially, but still something he can absolutely return from. We also know that for him it was his second ACL reconstruction. He had his first while he was an undergraduate at Baylor. So it's a different challenge because he's had more trauma to that knee than if this was his very first injury. And I think that's why... Everybody wants to be cautious with his rehab. Everyone's very encouraged by the progress that he's made early on. We keep hearing the quote that he's ahead of schedule. But it's worth reminding folks that being ahead of schedule a few months out doesn't necessarily translate to ahead of schedule when you're looking to return. There can be little peaks and valleys along the way, and they will monitor him to see how he does. In Lindsay Vaughn's case, she had a fracture, which you mentioned earlier. She was very fortunate that she didn't require major surgery to repair the fracture, which could have complicated her recovery. And she was able to have everything dealt with in one procedure, and while it will slow her weight-bearing down to some degree, it shouldn't affect her overall timetable. So, again, slightly different injuries for all three, but all three should be able to make a return, and I don't foresee any major problems. Let's get back to the gap between these lead athlete and either the weekend warrior or just the person who really isn't an athlete at all. There's been a recent report about a study in which participants who delayed ACL reconstructive surgery and opted for rehabilitation had essentially the same results after five years as those who had immediate ACL reconstruction and then rehabilitation. There was a quote from RG3 surgeon after surgery that, that essentially his ACL was healthy enough to not need surgery, if not for the fact that he was an NFL quarterback who was going to need to play a really rigorous sport. So is ACL surgery even required for all injuries if these people aren't these elite athletes who are going out there and trying to run on the turf and stop on a dime? It's very individual, and I think it's important to be very clear about what ACL injury is. A complete mid-substance tear, so the ligament tearing completely through in the middle of it, that's not going to repair itself, and those people are going to tend to be very unstable, feel like the knee is going to give out or buckle. Almost always surgery would be required in those cases. But in partial ACL tears, where you can have a legitimate tear in the ligament, but it's not torn completely through, and in the absence of instability, there's not necessarily a reason to rush to surgery because some of those folks, depending on their activity level and depending on the demands of their sport or their work, may not need ACL reconstruction and they may not need it initially. The reason stability and the presence of instability is so important is because if the knee is buckling or giving way repeatedly, you run the risk of cartilage damage inside the joint. And that can set you up for long-term problems like osteoarthritis down the line. So you don't want to be walking around or trying to participate in sports on an unstable knee. But a partial tear with stability and otherwise relative health of the knee may not be something that requires surgery, and certainly a conservative course of rehab is warranted as a first effort. Youth athletes now are experiencing ACL injuries too. It's especially more common in young girls. For the amateur athlete, the youth athlete, what can be done preventatively to help prevent ACL injuries? 
there's so many ways in which you can tear an ACL. We're never going to prevent all of them, but there's certainly been some interesting literature in the last few years on some of these ACL prevention programs, especially for young women, looking at essentially what their mechanics are when you're landing from running, when you're planting and cutting. If they're in a position that threatens the ACL, then they're more likely to injure it. And so looking at the pattern of how women tend to land when they're running or jumping, we see a lot of weakness through the hip, through the core, a lot of hypermobility, and that with the knee being essentially the center point, the vulnerable point between the hip and pelvis and the foot and ankle, it's going to be the point that fails if you have weakness above and below. So these programs have really focused on balance training, on core strengthening, on hip muscle strengthening, and in some cases, they've done studies where they've shown uh, decreased injury rates when they've looked at teams with traditionally high ACL tear rate, for instance, in women's soccer, put them on these preseason programs and then looked at their injury rates after going through these training programs and finding out that they're faring much better in terms of their injury rates. So that's been an area of focus that some people have done some really good work on, and I think we're seeing more of that being implemented nationally. Certainly, the attention is on women primarily, but it's not exclusive to women. And I'm seeing in the professional athletes that I'm covering more and more of them going on these proactive strengthening programs involving the core and the pelvis, some of them doing Pilates and yoga to really try and incorporate different styles of flexibility and strength training in an effort to decrease injuries. Again, nothing is going to be a universal solution and completely eliminate injuries. We're going to have them as long as we have sport, but to the extent that we can decrease the frequency, and certainly there's other benefits as well. It probably enhancing the basic skill set of a lot of these athletes by working on things like balance, flexibility, and strengthening. Then I think we're all better off. The conditioning, is that an area, too, that you've seen expand in terms of the number of things that they're doing now to try and have greater strength and flexibility overall, not just conditioned specifically to their sport? Oh, absolutely. And I think you're seeing a lot of this off-season cross-training. And one of the discussions that we will get into at times is, are they over-training in these other directions? Baseball, for example, the injury rate, the time spent on the disabled list, it really hasn't gone down. And yet the training programs that baseball players go through in the off-season have shifted dramatically, whereas many of them weren't doing a thing before. Now many of them are trying to train to help prevent injury. So we don't have the answer yet, but people are trying to find it. And I always say that cross-training and promoting year-round fitness is not a bad thing, but it's like with anything else. They have to be careful not to overtrain. The concept of core strengthening has really taken off, and by and large, I think that's a good thing. But we have seen some athletes go so hard in their core training that maybe it's setting them up for some more core-specific injuries. So finding a balance is always important. Baseball season started. You mentioned another famous ACL injury, Mariana Rivera. So hypothetically, if I took the 43-year-old reliever in my fantasy team, I should be fairly confident with his health? Well, you know how I said I cannot predict their health from anything else. But if you look at his history, this is a guy who really hardly ever has gone on the disabled list, has been remarkably healthy. He's already announced that this is his farewell tour. He's going to retire at the end of the year. If I'm rolling the dice, it's certainly going to be with somebody like Mariano Rivera. I'm looking for him to have a great final season. And if you're wrong and I come up angry and yell at you in Starbucks, will that be the first time that happened to you, or is that a fairly common occurrence? 
why do you think people come up and yell at me? Why do you think they don't come up and say thanks? Or maybe they do. Well, that's a good question. So what happens more? Actually, if the ones who are yelling at me, they might yell at me on Twitter. But the ones who come up to me at Starbucks are usually pretty nice, I have to say. By and large, people are, are very, very kind when you meet them in person. And we do these appearances usually before the football season where it's a big fantasy draft for for instance, and they'll have a presentation in the morning where myself and some of my colleagues are talking about projections for the season. And meeting those folks, they seem very appreciative of the insight. And I love it when I have Twitter followers or people who listen to the podcast who've adopted some of the things that I tell them to look out for. You know, people know what soft tissue injuries are and what I mean by that now. People know that I expect concussions to be treated very seriously and not dismissed. And so that makes me happy because if we're providing a little bit of education at the same time as people are having a good time, then that's even better. Stefani Bell, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That wraps up another episode of Move Forward Radio. You can follow Stefania Bell on Twitter at Stefania underscore ESPN and read her blog at ESPN.com. Be sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes and visit MoveForwardPT.com to learn more about ACL tears and how physical therapists can help. I'm Jason Bellamy. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Move Forward Radio. Insight from our guests is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for individual treatment by a medical professional. Learn more about how a physical therapist can help you and find a physical therapist in your area at MoveForwardPT.com. For an archive of past episodes, visit moveforwardpt.com slash radio.